Now will you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 14. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 14 and then preach on it. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go ye know, and the way ye know. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If ye had known me, you should have known my Father also, and from henceforth ye know him, and have seen him. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, Show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you I speak not of myself, But the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very works' sake. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father." And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Here in this reading, God's holy word, his name be praise and glory. Amen. Before I get into the message, obviously I would want to say that it's always a joy to be with you, and I feel a great deal of love with you, from you, towards you, and have talked so many of you over the years, and many of you we join together ever so often, call a day of prayer and fasting, and have seen the Lord fulfill what He says in Verse 14, if ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. So it's a great joy to be here, and I appreciate this conference and all that it stands for, as I'll be saying a little bit towards the end of the message. Now, the beauty of the Lord is our subject tonight. Fairest Lord Jesus... Beautiful Savior, Lord of the nations, Son of God and Son of Man. Blessing and honor, praise, adoration, now and forevermore. 
be thine. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to assist us in gazing upon the most beautiful reality that was ever seen once we see it, if you really see it. Everything else is different forever. So I want us to start tonight with what Jesus says about himself and his relationship to the Father in John chapter 14. And in verse 13, he's talking about this beauty. That's the theme of the message that the Father may be glorified, that the beauty of His glory may be seen in the Son. And that's what I'm praying about and speaking about to you and with you tonight. If you, which is unlikely, would ever go to Meadowbrook Cemetery in Lumberton, North Carolina, you might find a small gray granite tombstone with this inscription on it. In my Father's house are many mansions taken from John chapter 14, verse 2. It is the promise of Jesus to his disciples and was my mother's favorite verse. Hence, it means a great deal to me in addition to being the inspired truth of God on its own. Over the years, and I've been with the sick and the dying, the two chapters they've the most asked for has been Psalm 23 and John 14. This promise that Jesus has prepared for us, mansions in the Father's house above, raised two questions. First, Thomas wanted to know How can we get there? And secondly, Philip asked if Jesus would show us the Father, which is the supreme reality of all truth, glory, and beauty. Show us Him. Jesus' answer is the same in both cases, both to Thomas and to Philip. To Thomas, he says... I am the way, the truth, and the life. That is, I get you to the Father from death up into life. Verse 6, you need to go nowhere else but to me. And then to Philip, he that hath seen me hath seen the Father. Verse 9, that is, you need to look no further than to me. The greatest desires of life, the greatest questions that we ever face are found in Christ Jesus gazed upon by faith. And so the Lord's answer to both Thomas and Philip will indicate that the most glorious sight the most serene beauty ever to be seen by human or even angelic eye is concentrated in our Lord Jesus Christ. For to see Him is to see in personal form 
the Heavenly Father of radiant splendor, eternal glory, serene beauty. I want us to connect Philip's request to be shown the Father with what Moses was longing for in Exodus 33, verses 18 to 23. We'll turn to that. Exodus 33, 18 to 23. And most of you would know the passage well. And he, Moses, said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And he said, the Lord said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And he said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock, and it shall come to pass, while my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in a cliff of the rock, and will cover thee with my hand, while I pass by, and I will take away mine hand, and thou shalt see my back parts, but my face. Shall not be seen. You know that old gospel hymn, or some of you would, most of you wouldn't. If you're my age, you would. He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock that shadows a dry, thirsty land. He hideth my soul in the depths of his love and covers me there with his hand. Moses desired something even more than the miracles he'd been honored above most humans to accomplish in his lifetime in the Exodus events. Freeing the nation of slaves from an oppressive dictatorship. (laughs) Instituting the Passover with the cleansing blood of the Lamb and the passing by of the angel of death from the houses of the Israelites who had the blood smeared on the lentils and the doorpost and the firstborn lived because one day later God's firstborn would take their place. And the supernatural crossing over the Red Sea dry shod. All this through Moses. What a ministry. But Moses wanted something more than all the wonderful activities in which God had involved him. He wanted to see the Lord himself. He wanted to see the divine glory. You know, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, and Moses wanted that. Personal glory of God to see it. For himself. And so he says, Lord, show me your glory. The glory is the beauty. The beauty is the glory. 
And that is what this minister of God, Moses, wanted to see above everything else in his lifetime. He knew that the treasures of Egypt were nothing to compare with the beauty of the divine glory because we're told in Hebrews 11:26 he esteemed the reproaches of Christ greater treasure than the riches of Egypt. Now I believe that what Moses was longing for and indeed Even what Philip asked Jesus to show him is the deepest longing of every true minister of God and every true elder and every true Christian person. No matter how different we are in so many ways, you know, it's very different in here, in our backgrounds. Yet, if you scratch even superficially beneath the surface, you will find us all desiring to see more of the beauty of the Lord than anything else. The desire to behold the glory is the key to our personal lives. If you wanted to isolate us psychologically, personally, and spiritually, that would be the deepest and the most profoundly driving impetus in us that we can see the divine glory. It's the key to our ministry. I do not believe there's a one of you in here tonight who is so taken up with your ministerial service that you no longer care about the Lord Himself. I believe you care more about Him than what you do for Him. Wouldn't we all say with the hymn that's attributed to Bernard of Clairvaux, I don't know if he really wrote it, but it's close to his time and it's kind of his school, his group. We eat of Thee, the living bread, and long to feast upon thee still, we drink of thee the fountain head, our weary spirits gently fill. This thirst for the divine beauty binds us together probably more than anything else you could mention. I want us to contemplate it together in these sacred moments tonight. Unlike some other times, I'm not entering into the nuts and bolts of an effective Reformed ministry, absolutely essential as these matters are. And we do that in other contexts. Rather, I am seeking to take us down to the deepest wellsprings of the soul, to the passion and motor that drives our life and ministry, no matter what else is going on the outside. Some of you have a relatively happy time, at, 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 you know, tonight. Others, it's difficult. Whatever it might be on the outside, the thing I know will be the truest about you is that you won't see more of the divine beauty of God in Christ.
You hunger and thirst for His glory. And nothing less would satisfy you than the beauty of the Lord. And so I want to just give two major points. First, I want us to notice that the divine beauty is rooted in the personal relationships within the Holy Trinity. So we must first think of the beauty of Christ within the Blessed Trinity. That's the first point. As John shows us in chapter 14 of his Gospel, our starting point is always the Christ who has come to his people. Invisible, palpable form. Where he came from was the glory So we begin with the consideration of the eternal beauty of Christ within the life of the triune God. That is how deeply and how highly and how nobly your ministry is anchored and where it's really rooted, which is why you can never take it lightly. The eternal beauty of the one true God is most wonderfully concentrated in the Son of His love, in whose face, in the face of Jesus, we see the heart of the Father revealed. He says to Philip, have you been with me so long And don't you know that he who has seen me has seen the Father? That in the face of Christ is the truest, fullest revelation of the heart of God the Father Almighty. St. Athanasius said in his Contra Arianos in the early third century, That the Son is the same as the Father except for being Son. You see Him, and you get hold of Him in the Gospel. You know exactly who God is. You get hold of Him in the Gospel. It gives you a very, very different approach to the death that you and I must die. I was saying to a dear friend earlier today, fighting a particular disease, I said, yes, you're terminal, and I'm terminal. But it's all right when the terminus is a beautiful place. Christ comes as God made Man, in order to show us who God is, and in so doing, to save us and to renew the entire cosmos, which was his creation to begin with. John 1, 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And again, Athanasius said 
The only person that would be big enough to redeem an entire creation would be the creator of it. Name of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, the eternal Son, who was made flesh by miraculous action in the womb of the chosen Jewish maiden, the Virgin Mary, finds his essential identity precisely as eternal God. The Son's as old as the Father. He is God the Son. He has a Father. The Lord God Almighty, with whom and in whom, in the ineffable bond of charity and the blessed Holy Spirit, He mutually indwells and co-inheres one inside the other without being merged into one another, retaining personal distinctness and yet one glorious being. Jonathan Edwards has written wonderfully on this, and I've been rereading him a lot in the last year. And he ascribes the origin of all beauty to this triune God. It says God has to be triune for there to be any beauty anywhere. I quote him, The foundation and fountain of all being and all beauty, of whom, through whom, and to whom, is all being and all perfection, and whose being and beauty are, as it were, the sum and comprehension of all existence. And excellence. And I'm not going to quote you to death, but paraphrase it a little. Uh, Edwards brings out in his own way the same thing that Richard of St. Victor brought out long before him. Richard of St. Victor explained why God would be triune, why God is not a monad, why he's not a single solitary a sort of a Unitarian uh, being, because he couldn't be loved if he were not more than one person at the same time. You know, love is overflowing. Love is outgoing, and it seeks one with whom it can share its blessedness and light and beauty and have it reflected back. So God has always existed, not as a, a monad. That's, that's the God of the deist. An empty, vague, distant, finally terrible God. But the God of the Bible is triune. The Father's always had a Son. The Son's always had a Father. And and they've always been united in bonds of charity, as St. Augustine said. It's the Holy Spirit. So you've got to have Trinity... For there to be love. God is love. First John 4, 8. You wouldn't have love if God were not more than one person, but in the same being. And Edwards brings out that for there to be beauty, there has to be a triune God. There has to be more than one person at the same time because Edwards says that the basic definition of what beauty is, is cordial consent to the being of another. That the father's absolutely thrilled that his son is there. The son is absolutely thrilled with who his father is that he's there. 
And both of them thrilled with the blessed Holy Spirit who continually binds them and comes back to them. Let me just quote one, one sentence from Edwards. One person alone cannot be excellent or beautiful inasmuch as in such case there can be no consent. That is, no gladness that the other one's there. You know, God's glad. Did you know that? God is supremely happy. Paul says to Timothy, God is the only and blessed potentate, that's makarios in Greek, and as good a translation as there is would be, God is the only and happy potentate. Yes, because he's three in one in this cordial consent of each one of the three for the others to be there. And, and there's this overflowing beauty and love and, and joy. And we speak of this sometimes. I won't get too technical, but why not a little bit? In, in the <coughs> grand old Greek word, perichoresis, or this won't help you any. There's an English word, circumcision. And that's no help. I know it, but there's something like mutual indwelling or coherence. We don't we don't know how it works. It's just, it's just, how could how could God be one monotheistic deity, which is one God, and at the same time three persons in that one Godhood? I don't know exactly, but the closest the fathers could come reflecting at such places here is in, in John 14, you know, the works. The Father, I'm doing them, the Father does it. And John 5, I work hitherto and the Father works. And other places, you know, I'll come back to you and the Holy Spirit's there. When the Holy Spirit's there, Christ is there. And Romans 5, 5, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts with the Holy Spirit who's given to us. That's the love of the Father. The blessed Holy Spirit comes on the basis of the sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus. And this love He brings in us, which is why we're here tonight, is the love of the Father, God the Father Almighty. The love, the beauty. Sometimes called, as I say, perichoresis, or mutual indwelling. And, and, and so the divine beauty is, is seemingly anchored in the delight in one another that you find within the blessed Holy Trinity. Three distinct persons, one God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit or loving, loved, and love itself. Or giving, receiving, and gift. And the old church fathers called him in Latin, donum. When they write donum, in Latin for gift, they mean the Holy Spirit. God gives himself to us through Christ. In the Holy Spirit. Gregory of Nyssa speaks of this beauty as love of that which is infinitely good. 
And I quote, it's two sentences, so don't worry. <clears throat> the deity is in very substance beautiful. And to the deity, the soul will in its state of purity, means when you get saved, cleaned up, have affinity. that you'll desire that beauty, which is why you're here tonight, surely. And will embrace it as like itself. Now, end of quote from Gregory. Christ, having come down to us in the flesh, is an aspect of the internal beauty of God. Christ is like He is. There's no other explanation of how He was like He was. Except for the internal beauty of who God is. Each person of the Trinity giving himself to the others. And receiving the returns of love from each one of the others. Marriage is based on that, isn't it? In Ephesians 5. We have some grasp of this in the Father giving Himself to the Son and Spirit. The Son giving Himself back to the Father and the Spirit. And the Spirit proceeding from both and uniting both in ineffable ties of love as He continually returns to them within the undivided oneness of the perichoretic being. Andrew Murray, great devotional writer, Calvinist of 19th century, did a beautiful commentary on the epistle to the Hebrews. It has its limitations and it has its strengths. And I love it. It's entitled, The Holiest of All, An Exposition of the Epistle to the Hebrews. And here, Murray comments on the contrast in Hebrews 1, 5. That is, unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. A contrast between Christ and the angels. Between the Son of God and the angels. And Murray shows us that this contrast, the inspired writer of Hebrews, whoever it was, makes, takes us back into the beauty of the love within the Trinity and then outward, the beauty of God's love to us and of ours, back to Him and to one another in the company of the redeemed. Here's Murray. God has a son. This is the mystery of divine love, and that in a double sense. Because God is love, he begets a son, to whom he gives all he is and has himself, in whose fellowship he finds his life and delight, through whom he can reveal himself, with whom he shares the worship of all his creatures. And because God is love, says Murray, this Son of God becomes the Son of Man 
And the Son of Man, having been perfected forevermore, enters through death and resurrection into all the glory that belong to the Son of God. And now this Son of God is to us the revelation, the bearer of the love of the divine being. In Him, the love of God dwells in us. In Him, we enter and rest in it. When God speaks to us in this His Son, it is the infinite love imparting itself to us, becoming the inward life of our life. Jonathan Edwards defines beauty as communion or the what he calls the primary beauty of cordial consent to being, that is, of God being thrilled at who he is in the sharing and the joy of Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Now, I've got some, got some very good quotes on that, but I feel I will not uh, give them. Reverend William Still, a friend of many of us, mentor to me and some others, that was a Scottish Presbyterian pastor in Aberdeen. He lived from 1911 to 1997. And his Cree Fellowship of Evangelical Conservative Ministers in Scotland is the model that I think Ligon Duncan and others based our Twin Lakes Fellowship upon. And Willie still saw this very, very well. I've never known such a person that had the amazing capacity of pastoral insight, almost kind of know what you had to tell him before you got in the door. Disconcerting a little bit, but he... Um, an amazing preacher and humble man. And out of his ministry, immense things are still happening. And Willie Steele, in one of his little books that I'm in a volunteer study on Thursday mornings at 7.30 a.m. at RTS Charlotte, taking some students through, 20 show up every Thursday morning at 7.30, and my student assistant brings some sausage biscuits. And some coffee. And we went through work of the pastor last year in the first semester. And this time we're going through Willie Steele's book, Towards Spiritual Maturity, How to Overcome the Devil and Evil in Your Own Life. And this is what Mr. Steele says in that book, Towards Spiritual Maturity, which has a very fine introduction by Sinclair Ferguson, who sat under Mr. Still's ministry for his student years. And Mr. Still had grasped the beauty of the triune persons in terms of the peace that flows through the being of God. And he gave his life in preaching and praying, counseling. I think he wrote for the 
you know, internet, email. He's writing about, had a secretary about 30 letters a day. I don't know how he did it. Here's what Mr. Steele says, and it will enforce this thing, that the, the, the beauty of Christ, who he really is, you've got to go back into the Trinity. Mr. Steele says, God is the God of peace. He is at peace in and with himself. A fundamental implication of the Holy Scriptures is that the triune God was, is, and ever shall be in perfect accord with himself. Person with person. Office with office. And that he is satisfied with himself in the fullness and perfection of his wisdom, love, and power. When infinite intelligence finds infinite perfections in itself, infinite stability and integrity of character are assured. This integrity is simply another name for God's righteousness or rightness. He rejoices in it so much that he desires it for his creatures. It's us. And that, not only for its own sake as a seed, but for its fruit, which is peace. And he refers to Isaiah 32, 17 and Hebrews 12, 11. That's the first point. The, know who this Christ is, his beauty. It's what he is in the eternal, ever-blessed, holy trinity. Second point, last point. The beauty of Christ with us. Beautiful in God. Beautiful with us. Isaiah 7.14, famous prophecy of the virgin birth, tells us that Christ is Emmanuel. God with us. And the evangelist Matthew puts Gabriel's annunciation of Christ's conception to the virgin and of his coming birth into this context of Isaiah 7:14, Emmanuel, Hebrew Iman, Nu. God is with us. Iman, Nu, with us. Ao, God. The triune God spoke worlds into existence and placed the Adamic race in it so that the Father could prepare for His Son an immaculate bride. And in terms of this relationship of love, that this immaculate bride, all the elect from all ages, would be beautified and prepared to be the wife of the one whom God the Father loved the most, His wondrous Son, in all cosmic and human history, will be made sense of only in the sense that everything that's happening now is a dressing room for this wedding. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Everything else is subsidiary. It's important. 
It makes sense, even the suffering, the disappointments, the hurts, the loss of jobs, the misunderstandings, criticism, all of that that we don't like. I don't like it. It all will make sense in the light of the part it will play in preparing the and making this bride so immaculately beautiful for that wedding, as we're told in Revelation 19 and Revelation 21. This spotless bride seen in the future, though she was called when she was marred by sin and very ugly, has now been washed in the blood of the Son, blood of the Lamb, whiter than the snow from all her unsightly blotches and perfected in holy beauty by the death and resurrection of Christ in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And all beauty we'll ever see is some way a preparation and a little bit of a reflection of the splendor of the beauty that will shine out at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And indeed, uh, I will quote this from Jonathan Edwards, where he shows how the beauties of nature are intended to lead us up to the beauties of God and especially of Christ. And this is Edwards. When we are delighted with flowery meadows and gentle breezes of wind, we may consider that we only see the emanations of the sweet benevolence of Jesus Christ when we behold the fragrant rose and lily we see his love and purity. So the green trees and fields and singing of birds are the emanations of his infinite joy and benignity. The easiness and naturalness of trees and vines are shadows of his infinite beauty and loveliness. The crystal rivers and murmuring streams have the footsteps of his sweet grace and bounty. That beauteous light with which the world is filled in a clear day, and didn't we see it here today, is a lively shadow of his spotless holiness and happiness and delight in communicating himself so far, Edwards. This final consummation wrought by the manifestation of the person and atoning work of Christ will be the outraying of the glory of the triune God throughout the entire universe when the resurrected one returns and takes his people up to that realm that needs no sun, moon, or stars for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the light of it. As Revelation 21, 21 to 23 tells us. And so this uh, triune God whom we see most clearly in the Lord Jesus Christ. Which, by the way, I wouldn't agree with everything T.F. Torrance said or any other man probably, but he, I think he had this right. 
a lot of things right, but not everything. I, I couldn't have had everything right because I've changed my mind on a few things. <laughs> but anyway, Torrance says that's why Islam and Buddhism and Hinduism and shamanism can't be right. If God Almighty saw fit to save us, which He did from all eternity, the way He did it was by the sending and the showing and the coming in His incarnate Son. That's the only way. Yeah, the others have some sparklings of light in them, mingled with the darkness. Some truth mingled with the untruth. But only in Holy Scripture are we meeting the Son of God's love where we find who God really is. It's only in the face of Jesus Christ that we see the heart of God the Father Almighty. That's why only true Christianity is true. Doesn't mean we don't love the others. Doesn't mean we won't pour ourselves out for the others. Doesn't mean we won't go to the others. But our message is given to us from God and it's non-negotiable. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father except by me. Philip, have you been with me so long a time that you don't know that he that hath seen me hath seen the Father? You want to see the Father, you want to get to who God really is and who doesn't. That's sort of deep in the human psyche, I do believe. It is by getting hold of Jesus or Jesus getting hold of you. Now, there are various words in Holy Scripture for beauty in Hebrew and Greek. And don't worry, you know, there's 14, 15, 16 of them. I'm not going to go through them. I'm only going to mention very briefly two of them. And one is actually not in the Scripture, but it was penned shortly after the Scriptures were written. It is the word Shekinah, and the other one is the word Kabod, which is very scriptural. Shekinah was written by some of the very early rabbis right after the New Testament period in the Targums of Onkelos, if you want to know. And Shekinah was a term that was come up with to express the cloud of glory that was over the tabernacle that was shining to illumine them through the Red Sea in the darkness, but was darkness to the enemies of God and, and that filled the temple and so forth. That's the Shekinah glory. Bright and radiant, something like we see in Hebrews uh, chapter 1, the brightness of His glory, the express image of His person, that's Christ. The Shekinah, to use that word, it's not actually in Scripture, but its point is very scriptural. And light, as Edward says, is often used in Scripture to indicate comfort, joy, happiness, and good in general. I'll never forget, this is maybe a silly illustration, I don't take it very far, but when I was a student, when I spent one of my university years, 
at a certain university in France in Lyon, and I decided to friend and I hitchhiked down to from Lyon down to the coast and got some lifts or rides and it was dark and the pickings were slow and there it was kind of cold and kind of dark and I remember this train going by with all the lights on in the train and it was the dining car and I was hungry and the boy with me was hungry and there they were these uh, stately French people seated in that dining car eating and drinking and I thought it is a beautiful sight and the scripture says God is light and in him is no darkness at all maybe a little little reflection in my mind at that time and we Eventually got somewhere and it was all right, but of the light and the comfort and the beauty and the good things that God wants to give you. That, that, that's the Shekinah. And then there's what it's really reflecting is this word kabod in Hebrew, which really a literal translation would be heavy. The glory is so real. You know, man's chief end is to glorify God. The glory is so real, it's actually heavy. One reason I have a worry with services being too light and flighty and chatty and so forth is the glory is heavy. I don't mean they got to be solemn and terrible and funereal. Not, not at all. But that God's glory is so wonderful. That it has weight and substance. And you know it's real. In Exodus 40, verse 34, the glory cloud weighs down upon the tent and the kabod Yahweh, the glorious beauty of Jehovah, fills it on the inside and shines on the outside of it. And... I won't go into it, but C.S. Lewis, I think one of the best things he wrote was an essay that he, I believe, gave as an address on the BBC during World War II, The Weight of Glory. It's published in a little book, republished, entitled The Weight of Glory and Other Essays with C.S. Lewis. Read it. And so David prayed. And he had a heart like Moses and like Philip and his own way, poor, weak Thomas. He prayed in Psalm 63, verse 2, that he might behold the glory of the Lord in the sanctuary. Now, this glory of God is... Reflection of it in the fields and the streams and the flowers and the birds singing and so on and the light comfort. But in our sin and in our coldness and in our deadness, how do we get hold of it? This beauty. The something in us, no doubt, that makes us reach out towards it and yet we get scared and kind of Draw back a little bit. 
How do we get hold of it? In Isaiah chapter 53, you know, about the suffering servant, verse 2 says a very strange but instructive thing about how we get hold of this beauty. In fact, it's the only way we're going to get hold of the beauty. Isaiah says, prophetically preceding the Lord's, there was no beauty in him that we should desire him, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. Isaiah 53 is picked up several times in the New Testament and used in descriptions of what Jesus went through in his suffering on our behalf when he stood in for sinners and took the punishment and the horrors of the just indignation of a perfectly holy God against that which is contrary to his character. And the good news is that with his stripes we are healed. But the, it says there was no beauty in him that we should desire him. We hid as it were our faces from him. You know how it is on the television in a, some of these terrible scenes where people have gone into a, let's say, a school and wickedly shot children and teachers or blown up a bus or something in Afghanistan or Iraq or what, or in this country. And the at least the television news crews normally have the decency not to show you the mangled body because you, you hide your face to see something like that. They, the best they'll show you is a, a stretcher and the body's wrapped in sort of a a canvas, and they're carrying the stretcher out to the rescue vehicles. Because we hid, as it were, our faces from him. Because he stands in our place, the loveliest of the lovely, the fairest of ten thousand, becomes broken and bashed and battered so unspeakably ugly that we could not have borne, I reckon, to have looked directly upon him on Calvary's cross. But never was such beauty of God displayed, such beauty of beauty, as when the Son of God's love willingly sacrificed himself on Calvary the salvation of the elect, the redeeming of the church. John's Gospel speaks of God's glory in terms of signs, you know, this sign, that sign, the other sign, and the glory seen. He walks the waters, he calms the storm at sea, he raises the dead body of Lazarus and the widow of Nain's son, and he forgives sin and all these things. That's the glory. John also says the glory is when he, the Son of God's love, is lifted high on the cross and is bashed and bruised and battered 
bleeding to death and agony for our sake. And we see the beauty there in a way perhaps we get the closest to what it took for us to get in touch with the beauty of God. John Calvin says in his Institutes of Christian Religion, book 2, chapter 16, which is probably if you ever preached through the Apostles' Creed, use Calvin's book 2 of the Institutes, chapter 16, still maybe the best exposition of the, of the Creed. Calvin says an interesting thing that an outward view of the horrendous sacrifice of Christ, how the lovely one became so ugly in what was laid on him, might cause us to think something that's not true. It might cause us to think the Father did not love him, oh, but the Father had never loved him more than in those hours on Calvary. Yes, he he had to struggle through it in Gethsemane. Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. And he wins through. We sometimes, I don't think, appreciate the agony of the Son of God in the flesh for us as he's leaves the Last Supper and goes into the Garden of Gethsemane. There supposedly was an olive press there and crushed olives. He was more crushed than any olive in that press. And Isaiah says in another connection, he hath trodden the wine press alone. Have you ever wondered why it was he wanted... Peter, James, and John stay awake and pray for him. Kind of a support group, I reckon. Yeah. Why would the Son of God in the flesh really profoundly desire that these closest of his apostles would stay awake and pray with him, pray for him, as he goes a little deeper into the garden of old olive trees? I think William Law, the great devotional writer, had it correct, and I would dissent from some things he says, but in his serious call to a devout and holy life, I believe he gives the answer on this one. He said, as the Son of God is facing what he's got to face in Gethsemane, the sorrows of a lost soul in hell are opening up in the soul of of the Redeemer. I don't know too much about hell. It's real. It's terrible. It's what you want to avoid above everything else. And I don't doubt there's fire there. I don't doubt there's remorse there. All kind of things. I can't describe it very much. But evidently the worst thing is the absence of God. You say, well, the atheist would be very happy. They never wanted God in the school or in the courthouse or anywhere else. Yeah, but they don't know all the comforts that come 
from a certain degree of God's presence. They don't. They, and when they've lost Him, things that gave them certain comfort have all taken flight, taken wings in hell. The stars of a lost soul in hell are opening up in the Redeemer, and, and hell is whatever else it is. It's an ultimate loneliness, a horrendous loneliness. And Jesus, the Holy Son of God, the Holy One of Israel, is on the verge of being identified with all of our sins which separate us from God. And he's feeling this intense, the beginning of this intense loneliness of hell in his very self. And he wants them to pray with him. He's doing it for us. Beauty of God's love. Say one more thing about that. And I'm sure you won't be taken in by the likes of Albert Schweitzer, his, you know, the search for the historical Jesus, the quest for the historical Jesus, and Jesus Christ superstar, and things like that. Um, although I heard a so-called sermon in Paris on Saturday that wasn't far from it. And if the man gets his tape and hears this, it's fine with me. idea is he was a good man. He meant well. The world was too evil and he got the best of him. He dies a martyr crushed by the wheel of history. But he leaves us a good example and so forth. No, no, no. That's not who it is. Who is it? Jesus said in John 10, No man taketh my life from me. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it up. This command have I received of my Father. And Peter hacks off the ear of one of the servants of the high priest who wishes to do violence to Jesus. And Jesus tells him to put his sword up. says, don't you know I could call twelve legions of angels for my Father? Thousands upon thousands of holy angels could have illuminated the night sky and made quick work of the enemies of God. But Jesus had one through to say, not my will, but thine be done. And I'll show you who he really was in John chapter 18 which is surprisingly left out of so many of the lives of Christ. I recently have more or less written this second volume of Systematic Theology on Christ and looked at a lot of different lives from different theologies and communities. And it's amazing, and also in commentaries, it's amazing how Few of them will deal with what is said in John chapter 18 of what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. And there they are. It's black and dark. And the high priest militia and also some of the Roman soldiers were there with swords and staves and one can imagine the Shining the reflection of the light of the lanterns off the burnished shields of brass 
And they've surrounded him in one who with strong tears and crying had cried out to his father. And then they said, what's your name? We've got to make a report at the police department, as it were. I usually quote the authorized version. But the authorized version, I think, inadvertently adds in a word it shouldn't in John 18. The authorized version says, I am he. He is in italics, at least to the credit. They tell you when they add in something. And sometimes it's perfectly valid to do that. But actually in the Greek, he says, I am That's all he says. What's your name? I am. And Moses asked God at the burning bush. The bush was not being consumed. It was burning. And and God says, go down to Egypt land. Tell old Pharaoh, let my people go. Moses said, at least could you tell me, what's your name? Because I got to give you a name to Pharaoh. Lose his workforce, you know, sending jobs overseas. <laughs> and God said, I am that I am in, in Hebrew, Yod, Hey, Vau, Hey. It is the, it's the roots for the verb to be. I always am. I don't know all that that means, but it means I depend on nothing. Everything depends on me. I don't have an explanation. Every explanation of everything else has got to be found in me. I am that I am. And when Jesus says, I am, He is identified with the Lord God Almighty that overcame all the demonic powers concentrated at that time in Egypt. And it was as though a surge of deity went through the manhood of our Lord. And a beam of the uncreated light shines through the darkness of a Judean night. And when that happens, the whole army Roman and Jewish is not flat on their faces to the ground. This is the fellow of Jehovah, he who sits enthroned with deity that they're dealing with. No man taketh my life from me. I have the power to lay it down. And I have the power... To take it up. That's who he was. I'll tell you this much. That's why I hope this won't be misunderstood. could be as sheer antinomianism. But as Martin Lloyd-Jones once says, if you're preaching the gospel, nobody ever accuses you of antinomianism. You're probably not preaching the gospel. So think what you want to think. But I'll tell you this. One reason 
I have the profoundest confidence that God Almighty will forgive the sins of Douglas F. Kelly. It is God in the flesh that has become broken and battered and bashed and uglified and made hideous. So hideous that we hid, as it were, our faces from Him. And He doing this for me, if God went to all that trouble. I don't have any doubt. He will forgive my sins and the sins of anyone who will confess them. Just a final word, kind of final, don't you? <laughs> in my first ministry, there was a retired medical doctor in the congregation, and I quit doing it after that. I'd say it would have three points. In Rayford, North Carolina, and Cortez Cooper was there, and then he went to a larger charge, and I had it by myself, a large church, wonderful church. Now, this doctor, I'd eat at his house about once a week, and he said, Douglas, you get, you say, thirdly and finally, and you get my hopes up that we can go home, and then the thirdly and finally is about another 10, 15 minutes. Well, I didn't get any shorter, but I did quit saying finally. And I, I realized I just made a mistake. I said finally. It's not exactly finally. But anyway, just this. Uh, back to Jonathan Edwards a minute. And what he says is what John's Gospel says. And the whole Bible, Psalms and all that. To see the beauty of God that Moses longed for, and Philip said, Lord, show us. To perceive the beauty of God, there has to come a change in human nature, because human nature is radically fallen. Romans 1.18 says, we hold down the truth and unrighteousness because of our sin. There's a technical word, a noetic effect of sin, it affects the minds. We are biased. And we cannot, will not see the beauty of God in Christ Jesus because of our sin. But all that changes when the Holy Spirit comes in the mysterious, miraculous, transforming work of regeneration. And Jonathan Edwards called it sensibility, that the divine beauty is there, but there has to come a change in the human personality to perceive that beauty, and God has to do something in you to make you sensible to what is really there. Here's... One quote from Edwards. The first effect of the power of God in the heart in regeneration is to give the heart a divine taste or sense to cause it to have a relish of the loveliness and sweetness of the supreme excellency of the divine nature. And you know, 
John 3, 3, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How is it least I've known of a few people who had two PhDs in religious studies and didn't believe in God. How can that be? Except a man be born again, he cannot see. Or 1 Corinthians 2. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are spiritually discerned. It takes a transforming work of the Spirit of God. And in 2 Corinthians 5, it's compared to a new creation. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. It's, in a sense, almost as big as creation of this world out of nothing in the space of six days and all these marvels. God speaks worlds into existence, and that is the illustration that the Apostle Paul uses of the new birth. And in the new birth, I, you know, this is very mysterious. You know the old hymn, I know not how the Spirit comes, convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus through the Word, creating faith in Him, but I know whom I have believed and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. And the Holy Spirit is, the Westminster Standard says, works in the faculties of our personality, mind, will, emotions, so they sweetly comply. It's not, it's not a rape, it's not a, a, a violent forcing of the human personality against its own self, but, but the Holy Spirit comes as opening you up like, like the, Balm of Gilead, like the internal awe, getting you back to what you ought to be. And you really, you're moved and there's nothing you ever wanted so much as to see the beauty of Christ and to yield to that and to have it come in you. As David said in Psalm 34, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. That's what you want. And you wouldn't want it unless God, the Holy Spirit, had come and renewed faculties of your personhood. And then you see the beauty in a way you could never have seen it before. And all other kind of things become beauty. You know, the hymn, Heaven Above is softer blue, earth around is sweeter green, something lives in every hue, Christless eyes had never seen, birds with gladder songs o'erflow, flowers with brighter beauty shine, since I know as now I know I am His and He is mine. Now let me, this really will be close to a conclusion. If it's, if it's any comfort to you. I want to conclude with some words about our commitment to the ministry of the ordinary means of grace. To have the beauty of God shine through it. When I was a student at the seminary in Richmond, Virginia, not an entirely pleasant experience, but anyway, it was where I went in the mid-1960s. Father Alexander Schmiemann, a Russian Orthodox theologian of note, lectured to us on worship in the Orthodox tradition. Very interesting series of lectures. One thing I remember him saying was this. 
He said in years past he had been quite surprised when he immigrated to this country, if not really shocked, from time to time to go into a Presbyterian church and to see its plainness and Puritan bareness. You know, barren of icons and candles and sometimes stained glass and a very simple liturgy and relatively few responses and no smells and bells. And he'd feel more at home in the PCA than he did in the Southern Presbyterian back then. But <laughs> Well, he said he found it, found it shocking and somewhat offensive. But then he began to look at it in a completely different way. He had a Presbyterian friend whom he respected very highly and he knew to be a spiritual, godly person. And he was saying, why is the Presbyterian and the Puritan tradition so terribly plain and barren in the buildings and the services? This friend told him. The beauty of God is so great and so wonderful and so all-surpassing that it cannot be represented in physical items. And we want to keep everything as relatively plain as possible so God's beauty can come shining through the Word and the sacraments and the prayer and the lives of the people. And he said that it really changed his whole approach towards Presbyterian worship. I believe this conference will need to continue encouraging our ministers to stick to plain Puritan architecture when they have anything to do with it, straightforward services. And as few human innovations as possible. You're going to have some, and okay. That's certainly a problem for many of our brethren who I, I feel like seem to be in a panic to be respected in a confusing and changing religious culture. And some evidently feel that they must imitate either high Anglican ritual or take on certain Pentecostal practices, you know, depending on where they are. And I'm, by the way, understand, I'm not saying that the high Anglicans don't see the beauty of the Lord, and I'm not saying the Pentecostals don't see the beauty of the Lord. I'd never say a thing like that. I'm simply saying that we've been blessed in a long time reformed tradition of seeking to have our worship closely regulated by the Holy Scriptures. The prime reason being not that we're against anything new or, you know, any sort of thing that would assist faith, but we want to keep 
the decks clear that the beauty of the Lord our God may shine forth unhindered by any unnecessary human invention. So it's not so much we're against everything. Hope we're not. But we're for the shining forth of the beauty of the Lord and you've got to make room for it. And you're preaching. Time enough to preach. And you sticking to the Word. And we're talking about this necessity of sensibility, as Jonathan Edwards calls it. That's why you ought to have a prayer meeting. Luke 11 tells us the Holy Spirit's given an answer to prayer. You say, I thought the Holy Spirit was God. He's sovereign. Of course He is sovereign. Of course He's God. And, and God's Son says you've got the authority in the name of the Son to ask for the Holy Spirit to come down. And that's what you're doing in a prayer meeting to ask that the sensibility will be given to those that are dead towards God in your family, in that church, in that community. You know, we were singing whatever hymn it was, the opening hymn of uh, John Newton. And in the second verse, I believe it says, about God gave us ears and gave us eyes. And first John speaks about the anointing of our eyes with the eye salve of the Holy Spirit. And then you see. I want to say is... We face a future in this culture. I don't think I've ever been more hopeful than I am now. People say, well, you know, you, some of you may be feeling, all right, you've talked about uh, in-house church stuff and all that. And what about the secularist on the outside? I say this. Once they get a glimpse of the beauty of God in Christ, the Father loving the Son, the Son laying down everything for the glory of the Father and the redemption of the church and the blessed Spirit affirming all of it and working through all of it, Hebrews 9, 14, He through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God and that Spirit coming. Once they get a little glimpse, a little tiny, teeny glimpse of the divine glory you can't hold them back. I think secularism is, of course, in some ways inspired by the devil, has the most awful misrepresentation of who God is. They think God is mean. They think He is ugly. They ultimately think He's the devil. That's right. That's why they get so mad at the Ten Commandments somewhere. There's was a prayer at a high school graduation, spend millions to block it. Why would something that crazy? They think God is a devil. They think He's mean. He's dreadful. He's out to get them. Jonathan Edwards, I didn't want to quote him too much, but in his book, Charity and Its Fruits, he has an amazing passage commenting on James 2, that the devils believe and tremble. Only a human is a fool enough to be an atheist. The devil knows better. <laughs> and Edwards asked, what's the difference between the faith of a devil and the faith of a saint? Here's what he says. I believe he's right. 
The devils see God's power and His omnipotence, and they hate Him for it. That's why they don't want a Christian on the school board and that sort of thing. But the saints have had their hearts melted at the loveliness of God in Christ. And they love Him for Him. They want Him to have everything that they are and have. It's a great time, beloved brothers in the Lord, to be a minister, to be an elder, to be a Christian, humble Christian. Because the future of the world is in our hands. I know God's in charge. I know the book of Revelation's there and so forth and so on. But in many ways, the future of what's going to happen is in, to a degree, uh, in the providence of God, of course, in the plan of God, in the hands of, of the church. As if we will worship God, and I believe Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, or sometime there's a prayer meeting, get out of the way, remove anything unnecessary, pray down the Holy Spirit and the preaching of the Word, and ask God to help us to deal with our sins and to live well-ordered, beautiful lives. And a tremendous opportunity for the lost and the God-haters. We don't hate them back. We love them. That's what. And we want them to see the beauty that we have seen. That'll change everything. Just like that. Just like that. In the name of the Father, and Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.